All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode. Today, I have Daniel Holzman with us. So welcome to the show, man. Thank you for having me. Very uh, exciting. Grateful to have you on. Um, if you can, just kick us off, just brief intro, who you are and what you do. I'm a chef guy, restaurant guy. I grew up in New York City, and um, I make food for the regular people. So um, quality-driven, fairly priced pizza and meatballs. I'm a pizza and meatball guy. And, uh, you know, I, I worked in fancy restaurants most of my life, but this is where I'm at. No, that's awesome. So tell uh, tell us a little bit more about because is it it's called um, is it straight up called like meatball shop or tell us a little bit more about like that story. So two thousand and eight, I was working in fancy restaurants. Uh, my my high school best friend Michael Chernow calls me up and he says, "I want to open a restaurant in New York City." I had migrated all the way out to California at that point, and uh, he convinced me to come come back to the city and open a restaurant with him. And we were like fist fighting best friends, you know, like um, the kind of guys that are like, you know, not not afraid to punch one another in the face. And um, we uh, we we kind of forged this meatball shop restaurant concept out of kind of thin air together. And we opened it up to great success. And it was um, a full service with a bar kind of choose your adventure meatballs, five meatballs, five different types of sauce, different pastas. And at the time. You know, it was a it was a recession in the country and it was an inexpensive, really fun place where I don't know, people kind of got excited about the best friends opening a business together and it it was super successful and really it was just like a wild ride. We were so so busy right away and we opened a bunch of restaurants, one after another after another. And you know, it no story is is uh linear like everything's like a roller coaster of disaster and then success two steps backwards three forwards and yeah in the end we um we're still we're still dear friends and the restaurants are still open so it worked out <laughs> wow so when you were um because i know you said you worked at fancy restaurants and stuff but when you were younger it seems like did you always kind of know you would be in the restaurant business i'm i started working as a delivery boy because my mom worked nights and my brother was older. And so he wasn't around and my mom kind of got me a job to keep me out of trouble and keep me busy. And I found my way into the kitchen early on. Um, and I loved it. I think mostly cause I got so much positive feedback from people talking about, you know, oh my God, you're so young and you're so you're doing so well. And it felt so good to hear that, but I never really knew until the end of high school specifically that you know, this was the path that I was going to take. And at that point, I, I was kind of further a little far enough along that I had a little bit of like an advantage. And um, it was, you know, it's hard to turn that away when you're when you're good at something or doing well and have some experience. It's hard to turn your back on that. Yeah, interesting. So and not, you know, that's why I love just having open conversations, because I think that that's so true. I have actually thought about this a lot, but without really being aware of it, meaning like how often is success rather where like you just keep trying all these things, then you find something that you are good at. And then it, it's like, maybe something else would maybe be more fulfilling. And I'm, I'm not saying that in your case, but maybe it would, but it's like the fact that you have a gift in this realm 
it's like, why would you like so many people go through life without ever finding their gift, you know? So like the fact that you were even able to find one is like magical. So it's like, how could you, I just feel like a lot of people find their entire career path kind of by like accident, you know, like it's not ever like perfectly. I, well, what do they say? Most Americans have like five distinct careers in their lifetime, you know, something crazy like that. Um, oh, I didn't so know. So people are, people are, I don't, I don't, don't quote me. Don't okay, got <laughs> No, no, but it makes, I mean, or maybe like five, yeah, five different career changes or yeah, something. Yeah, people are constantly changing their careers because when we, you know, and then, you, but, but we also put so much pressure on like, you know, as a young person, it's like, what do you, what do you want to do? And it's like, well, ask a 50 year old. They have no idea what they want to do. So like, how do you expect this guy 20 to have any idea? Um, <laughs> but then there's, the, and then there's this other idea that like, you know, if you if you if you were well matched for your job, you have a better you know chance of 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 succeeding and excelling. So like, would I I would be, I would be a shitty banker. Um, yeah. And so this idea that like that's a better job because I would make more money. Um, I wouldn't make more money because I would fail at that job. And so potentially, if I was as good at being a banker as I am as a cook, I would make more money. But that's like, you know, potentially if I, you know, had a full head of hair and, you know, I, I could have I could have had a different job. I could have been a movie star. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what is your like your, your favorite thing is like pizza and meatballs. Those are your two favorite things to make. I, I actually um, I, I've got a little bit of that. Like, I don't think it's like an ADD diagnose. Like I think I just get really excited about learning new things and I can be passionate about anything that's fun. And then um, most things don't hold my interest for a you know, very, very long term. So it's not that I love pizza and meatballs so specifically and only. It's that they're both really interesting, unique challenges that were fun to spend a ton of time um, getting good at. Um, pizza specifically now, because baking um, is just such a fascinating, deep kind of like rabbit hole of a subject to learn about. Um, and the further you go, the more there is to learn. And crazily, it's like one of the oldest ways that we've, you know, sustained ourselves is by milling grains and cooking breads. But in the last like 15, 20 years, there have been huge kind of leaps in, and developments in our understanding of how, it, how it's done. So like this ancient thing is being revolutionized right now and it's really spectacular to be part of that and get to experience it yeah i um i want to talk to you too um about your your book right you're you have a cookbook called food iq is that is that right i do i came my 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 writing partner matt rodbard and i came out with this cookbook at the beginning of the year and it yeah. we wrote it during the pandemic and i gotta tell you it saved our butts because we were both deep in hard work and concentration while, while, while the world was distracted by important, more important things. We were writing a book. Yes. Okay. So that's why I want to, yeah. So I want to talk about the book um, just because a lot of our listeners are actually people that like, uh, I want to talk to you like about the writing and the actual content, but my core business is authors unite and it's all, it's very book related. So that's very fitting. But before we talk about that, I want to, um, ask you like what were like what's your take on how like with the pandemic like what was that like for you and your restaurants and just if you were to give kind of an overview discussion on it i'm just curious 
you know. In if I were to give an overview discussion, I would say that um, overall, the restaurant business going into the pandemic, um, in general, was ripe for um, uh, for disruption and upheaval. There's some. There was. It was not working anymore. The financial um, kind of like the traditional financial setup of a re- of how a restaurant you know you you spend this much on labor and this much on food cost and this much on this and rent and it all comes out and here's what your profit should be that stopped working and was slowly getting uh the profits were being eroded away and more restaurants opened than you know i think it was like restaurant openings outpaced population growth 10 to 1 for 10 years straight and you know, private equity was pouring money into so people were, were fighting over rents and rents were skyrocketing. And at the same time, um, you know, uh, you were having to pay more fines, more taxes. Um, the, the government was able to keep a closer eye because of uh, the computerized kind of like point of sale system. So like there was the, all of these factors that that made the restaurant business, it was kind of teetering on, on, on the verge of a big disaster. And then COVID was not, was like, you know, the it was like the cinder block that broke the cam- camel's back, right? So, on one hand, COVID was a, was a terrible, terrible challenge for so so many. But on the other hand, it was also kind of like a lot of the, the the stuff was going on, and you see that throughout all, so many industries, like industries that were doing well before COVID, and were really you know some of them did even better. Some of them were challenged, but you know the great ones kind of came through. And then you know, like movie theaters, we were all like do you really go out to the movies as much as we do? Is this really a great business? And then it's like COVID is obviously really bad for movie theaters, but like they're not closing because of COVID. They were kind of closing anyway. Right. Mm. Yeah. I see what you're saying. Um, So yeah, it's, it is wild. I just know. And being in Miami, um, I guess it was quicker than most places that things got back to, you know, quote unquote normal. Um, but in other places, I think in some places there's still stuff going I've on. I've got a restaurant in, 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 uh, in Oakland and it's still, I mean, it's still going on up there. I, I went up there and I was, I was pretty surprised to see that most of the folks were wearing masks and people were not going out to restaurants. And so there's a lot of the stuff that, um, that passed quicker in other parts of the world, you know? I don't know. The entire world spent the last two years pointing at each other and calling each other stupid. So like, you know, who knows? Maybe, maybe they're right. Maybe they're wrong. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Not great for my business for sure. Not great yeah. for my business. <laughs> yeah, no, I feel it. And I mean, I'll say, I think I like the way Miami handled it. <laughs> um, but I don't know. Um, like in Miami, I don't think, it, it almost is like it doesn't really exist anymore down here, but I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean, my LA, um, LA is pretty much, you know, you wouldn't really know. Like I went to the doctor's office the other day and I was like, okay, okay. I get it. That's still going on here. But by the way, if I was, a, you know, at the hospital, I would be like all these sick people coming in. I would like to make the mask thing a permanent deal, right? Like anytime I go to the hospital, I want everybody to wear a mask. It'll make me feel better. Yeah, I actually, want to look at uh, look at the people in the hospital, and I don't want them to look at me. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know what? I hadn't thought of that. It's not a terrible idea, though, just for the sake of like everybody is sick, and that's yeah, why- like you're definitely sick. You're at the hospital, and 
you know, if I recognize you, I don't, I don't, you know, like, what are you here for? Like, oh, I'm getting this thing removed. Like, we don't need to talk about it. Let's just pretend that this didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, I'm in agreement. I actually, <laughs> like, anytime I go to doctors or hospital or anything, the last thing I want to do is talk with someone. <laughs> run into your, run into your friend, Chad, that you forgot to Facebook message back because you actually didn't like him. <laughs> yeah, dude, that would not be good. I'm just trying to get the shit covered. You know what I mean? <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> So no, that's not a bad idea. Yeah, I know the one thing because I know like tomorrow I'm I'm going to take a flight to uh, Vegas for one of my friend's weddings, and I don't think because it's been like a couple months since I've been on a plane. I don't think they do it on the planes anymore. But I remember I went to Dubai. This was like a year and a half, so it was kind of in the middle, and they weren't too strict on like the Emirates um, flight, but they still did want you to like they they still had to say they were like, hey, in between bites you know, put your mask up. And I just kept always saying, I'm like, dude, in between bites, this is just madness. Like I- on the, uh, on Delta. Now they just give you a Purell pack. Oh, They're yeah. just like, here's a Purell pack. <laughs> That'll do it for you, buddy. You could snort it. You can, you can <laughs> rinse your mouth with it. You could wipe, wipe it on the seat, but just like the hospital thing, frankly, you know, I don't know who was on the on the seat before me, but I know that in the 13 minutes between flights that they, they didn't clean the plane. So maybe the Purell ain't doing such a bad thing, COVID or not. Yeah, I agree. And my I get what you're saying. And I think that too with flights. My thing is just, I don't know what it is. Maybe I get a little anxiety on flights for whatever. It's just like, I feel like I can't breathe that well with a mask regardless. And then then you put me in this like in, in boxed like, thing with all these people and i'm like dude like and then also a mask i don't know man it just makes my anxiety even worse so (laughs) i'd just rather avoid that um so regardless um so i'm curious before we get into the details of the book is what was it why did you decide to write it and then what was the actual process like the behind the scenes of writing it like so my my so like i don't know 15 12 years ago i opened the meatball shop 15 years ago my and matt rodbard my writing partner was a journalist um and he came in for the opening and interviewed me about something and we kind of became friends and started you know had a had a shared shared uh kind of like passion for traveling to the outer boroughs of new york and looking for interesting eats and um you know at some point i had i had let him know that I was interested in learning more about writing. And he said, well, why don't we buy a line of column together if you're serious? And so we started writing this column from, from, for Saver magazine. Um, and then later we turned, we moved it over to taste, um, which is an online magazine. And we had the column for like, I don't know, years, you know, five or six years. And it was started out, it was called, uh, Asian drinking food adventures or something like that. Cause we'd go get drunk and go look for great Asian restaurants and outer <laughs> boroughs. And then um, I think both of us, our drinking got out of hand. So we, <laughs> we had to scrap that concept <laughs> and, um, and it turned into this like hundred questions for my friend, the chef as a chef and as a rest, as a, as a, as a food journalist, you know, you get so many questions coming in from people and it's like the simplest questions that people have. Like I got a piece of salmon. What should I do with it? Or what is it? You know, why there are like three different types of olive oil in the supermarket. Why, why is a little jar $30 and a big can $10? Like, what's the difference? What do I use them for? People just don't really, there's some fundamental kind of understanding and learning that doesn't 
that people don't know. So, so um, the column was really popular because we tried to take a question and answer it in in depth and with an article, and then example it with a recipe, um, which was fun, and it 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 um it got a lot of great feedback. And so we decided to expand it into a book, take some of the more popular questions that we had already talked about, but then also really put a hundred, you know, like a hundred questions for my friend, the chef was the concept of the book. It was, you know, like, let's raise your cooking smarts, food, uh, food speak. And, and kind of like being a foodie is something that it was kind of nerdy for a while. And then it really got a little corny. Everybody's like, I'm a foodie. And then we were like, we will, but we want to re- we can re, re, reclaim this title of being a foodie um, and be excited about it because we are excited about what we eat. And it's like, it's like cultural cachet, the culinary cu- currency or something like that. The idea to be, you know, like you talk about cooking and food and restaurants, and it's a little intimidating if you don't really know, uh, if you don't understand it, um, because, well, you know, there's like French people involved, so they make it intimidating. <laughs> yeah no that makes sense <laughs> <So>. <laughs> you know what i mean like that way we can you don't it's not just because i want to learn how the best way to cook a steak but i want to hear like when someone says like braise or saute or sear or, or poach like what the hell does that mean and i think most people just kind of nod and smile and like don't want to sound like an idiot so they pretend they know but most people don't really know and cooking is so simple and it's so easy and it's such a pleasure you know i cook food for myself and my wife every night and it's a quick fun delicious cheaper there's no reason it's like learning to cook is the greatest gift you can give yourself yeah okay so let's i think that would be actually a pretty good path based on our listeners to to talk about because a lot of people they especially like entrepreneurs business owners and stuff they very much like they'll just order out all the time or they have the um what's it called like hello fresh or um or whatever the ones where you just put in the microwave there's a bunch of them that are like three minutes and it's done but it's already like pre-cooked so you would say though that it doesn't need to be that way like there is a productive way so like if you were to give, and I'm actually, I'm asking this selfishly because I am one of those people, like in the building I live in, there's a restaurant downstairs. I eat at it every other day. <laughs> like it's ridiculous. Um, so it, what would actually be some like quick meals for someone who's like busy, quote unquote, we're all busy. But if, if I didn't want to spend an hour in the kitchen, but I would still want to have an awesome meal, what recommendations would you have on that? I think, um, First of all, I feel like there one of the chapters in the in Food IQ um, is like a tools and technology chapter, and I started using the microwave and an instant pot and cooking with it and testing it out and playing with it. So, you know, there's using a microwave, you can cook a lot. Like I make, I'll make myself for dinner, I'll make myself a baked potato in the microwave, and I absolutely love that. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to come home, I wrestled jujitsu pretty seriously and I would come home from the gym, just ravenously hungry, no, no, no plan prepared. And I pull a steak out of the freezer and season it and throw it right in the broiler frozen. And like nine minutes later, you have a perfectly cooked steak. So I'll take a frozen piece of fish. I'll put it with some mushrooms, a little white wine and butter, and I'll wrap it in plastic wrap and on a plate, stick it in the microwave for seven minutes. And it's like perfectly poached fish. Um, 
I'll do stuff like that. I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty, I've got good, nice skills and, you know, I'm a professional chef. So for me, some of the stuff probably goes a little faster. Like, you know, some of the knife work that takes longer for folks, I can kind of knock that out. Um, there's also like a passive versus a, um, uh, versus an active cooking that I think people are like, Oh, it's a two hour process. Like, no, it's like 10 minutes of work. And then you just, it's, it's like an hour and 45 minutes in the oven. So, you know, there's that as well, where I'll throw something in the oven and you forget about it for 20 minutes. Um, I think the more you cook, the best way to go about it is to start with a very simple individual, unique thing like that you like, like, Oh, you know what I like? I like teriyaki salmon. Great. Like, why don't we work on the teriyaki salmon recipe? Um, it's something that shouldn't take more than 15 minutes all in. You can bake a piece of delicious, healthy salmon, and then you can keep on playing with that teriyaki salmon until you're like comfortable with the cooking, comfortable with making the sauce. And then we'll switch out the fish or we'll switch out the sauce. Um, but it doesn't need to be like an all encompassing. I need to learn everything. Uh, you know, you, you bite. How do you, you know what they, what do they say? Like, how do you eat an elephant? What one bite at a time? There you go, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a genius. <laughs> um, that's funny. Um, got it. Okay. So that makes sense. And that actually was pretty eye opening for me. That one part with the oven, because that is actually what it is. And I know my, um, my mom, uh, stay at home mom, she would cook dinner for us every night and her, my grandparents and great grandparents, they always had uh, German, um, restaurants from the town I grew up in. It's like small town. Oh, you might know cause you're from New York. So, um, or at least that's what I uh, read about you. So like, um, in, uh, Bucks County, do you know, like Doylestown? I don't think I know where is Doylestown in Bucks County. So Bucks County is like an hour North of uh, Philadelphia. So it's not, it's like two and a half from New York to drive, but I don't think I've really ever been to Doylestown. Yeah. Yeah. Doylestown's small. Bucks County is pretty big. It's between like Allentown and Trenton or something. Yes. Yeah. Allentown. Allentown, I think would encompass like Bucks County. Allentown. I mean, I know the Billy Joel song all about that. Yeah. No, I've, 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 I've driven through there. I've, I've spent a little time at Princeton and been to Bethlehem. So like, I know Bethlehem. Yeah. I know the area. Okay, great. So yeah, that's where I um, grew up. And yeah, my grandparents and stuff had uh, like German restaurants there and stuff. And um, regardless, so my mom grew up in the business and then she, they had sold the restaurants and everything. But then my mom, like I said, stayed home mom and she would cook every night. And I'm just like, I'm having flashbacks after you said that it's like, I, and I want to be clear because my mom listens to my episodes <laughs> that it was still a lot of work. But now when I think back, it was like, you know, sometimes she would cook like um, a turkey or like something and she'd actually start it like in the morning. Right. So it's like an mm -hmm. day thing. But in fact, like if you were to actually measure the amount of actual like workable thing, like it maybe it was only an hour, but it was in the oven for like 10, you know, so I don't know. Um, it's just in my mind, I was always I would always group that together and be like, dude, I don't have two hours to cook dinner tonight. When in fact, it's just really it's 20 minutes. And for that other hour and a half or hour and 40, I could be working while it's in the oven. So I feel like the air traffic control is the hardest um, is the hardest part, like knowing when to start what to make sure it all ends up at the same place. And the better you are at that, the more efficient the time becomes. And you can kind of really, 
you know, advantage yourself. Otherwise you wind up like running around. Um, but again, I think that's because people just, just bite off a more intimidating, difficult, complicated recipe than they should. Like the trick is like cook the salmon with salt in the oven at 350 degrees. And then like, it'll be pretty apparent whether you undercooked it, overcooked it, under salted or over salted it. Like there's no, yeah. You, know, you 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 can figure that part out when you start adding lots of ingredients and complicated techniques. It's very hard to pinpoint like where it went right or wrong and and get good at it and get any confidence. Yeah, so it is kind of like a trial and error type of, uh, and you can follow a recipe and stuff. But uh, you know, and even if you follow a recipe, you might like my mom. I know she does that all the time. She'll like follow a recipe, but then she'll like alter it to what she thinks that we will like potentially more, but that's like a trial and error type of thing. And most of the time she's correct. And then there's been some times where we're like, eh, didn't really like that. And then she'll like change it up. So I think that's what it is too. Just a lot of trial and error. Uh, you, your mom, you said she listens to these episodes. So she shouldn't feel too bad. I, yeah. I got banned from Thanksgiving stuffing for five years straight because I, I meddled with the recipe and almost, you know, ruined the best meal of the year for, for a, full, for a full one. <laughs> okay. I maybe we'll clip that and we'll tag her. <laughs> put it on Instagram or something. Um, that's funny. Um, so as I, I was looking through just like the topics um in food IQ, and there's a couple that uh stood out. So I just wanted to kind of ask you about a few of them. So um and it's funny because the the first one, and it's because I know of some people that work at uh Cutco or did when I was younger. And, um, you know, they really nice knife. So there's one part in here that you say, what's the difference between a $30 knife and a $150 knife? What, what is that about? <laughs> this is like one of the biggest questions. Like, you know, you get questions like what kind of pots and pans should I buy? What kind of knives should I buy? You know, the, those are the type of questions that come in as a chef all the time. Um, and it's nice to now I can make a profit from it. I can just say, <laughs> I don't know, buy the book, buddy. <laughs> it's in there. Um, yeah, the knife thing, the knife thing is such a challenging one because so much about it is the is keeping it um a tool is in the in like the hand of the beholder. The, you know, the the you, the 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 quality of the tool becomes appreciated. And if you want to use the tool, so like I've got a huge collection of knives, but I do have I've got four knives that sit out on my counter and there's one that I use all the time. Um, for whatever reason, it feels good in my hand and I love it. So what's the difference between a $30 knife and a $150 knife? You got to figure out which one you, if you can feel good about the $30 knife, then there's no difference. Um, there's obviously some, 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 like a lot of, a lot of the, 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 the quality of the steel, how, how the, how handmade the process is where it was made, like all of these things come into play, like, you know, the economy where it's weighed. So if you get a, a, a knife that was made in India, um, it might be less expensive than a knife that was made in Japan, but it doesn't mean that it's the, the quality is not as good. Um, it might be a better quality, but the economy that it was made in just might have a, a lower paid wage. Right. So like, that's kind of stuff starts to play a little bit of a role. Um, but generally speaking, you can, you can take a, a Victor Knox um, knife and do anything you could do with a fancy expensive, you know, Japanese sushi knife. There's no, 
you, you that's not a thing but keeping the knife sharp is more more important than the quality of the original knife yeah got it okay um and then another one and this is coming out kind of rapid fire because i i just i skimmed through some of these topics and there's just some that really stuck out but this is another one is with the cooking pasta so like um it, and, it, and it says in here is like, how do I cook pasta? Why does it always taste better in a restaurant? So in Miami, like I've gone out to so many different Italian restaurants here. And one of my favorite ones is called Pain and Vino. And they do like the, the cheese wheel. So they like the pasta is like fresh cooked and it's like comes out steaming. And then a guy comes with this huge cheese wheel right next to you and then drops it in there, mixes it and then puts it on your plate and then adds more cheese on top. And it is freaking incredible. So why does that taste better than when I try to make it at home and I still smother it in cheese and I think I do maybe everything the same, but it does not taste the same. So I'm curious. Um, so basically when <laughs> I think it's panne e vino, right? Like bread and wine. I don't think yeah, it's that's what I, mean. yeah, bread and wine. I don't think it's like, Oh, you said pain and vino. I don't think it's like you get the hangover first. Um, the, <laughs> The um, uh, so basically, you know, when you work in a restaurant, the the cooking of the pasta and the, is is a continual thing. You got your boiling water and you're cooking pasta in it. Then you're pulling your pasta out. Then you're cooking more pasta and you're pulling. So you're never like cooking the pasta in a pot and then dumping all the water out. But like in a, at home, you make it in one go. So you dump all the water out, and then you've got this pasta and you have your hot sauce and you just kind of dump it on top. But in a restaurant setting, the way you do it is a little different because you're you're doing you're you're making one portion at a time. So you would you would cook your pasta in the water. You would heat up your sauce in a frying pan next to the boiling water. And then when the pasta is done, you kind of shake it. You know, you pull the strainer of the pasta out, and then you dump it into the sauce. And that process of of kind of like finishing the pasta along with the sauce. So you're actually cooking the pasta in with the sauce. And in Food IQ, we advocate cook it for a minute less than it would normally need so that you can really spend an extra minute cooking it with the sauce mm. is the magic that some of the starch leaches from the pasta and the pasta water and helps to emulsify the oils, the fats and the liquids in the, um, in the water, uh, the, the, the water, you know, the water-based kind of like liquids in the, um, in the sauce and helps it to like stick to the pasta. Um, yeah. so, you know, it really becomes like a, 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 a singular dish instead of like pasta and sauce, which is, which is ideal, not ideal. Got it. No, that makes sense too. And now that I just thought about it, that is actually what I, cause I forgot that step when they put it in the cheese, it's been a while since I've been there, but I think what they do, they put it in the cheese wheel and then they actually pour sauce, like not cheese, but the tomato sauce and mm -hmm. mix it with that. So that, and they do it for actually a while, like longer than you would think it would need. So you're saying that in that uh, time, it's actually part of the cooking of it. Yeah, it's like cooking and absorbing and melt, you know, like it's a little like cooking the, the sauce, the pasta in the cheese wheel. It's a little bit of a gimmicky thing, but the yeah. it's funny. It's like a little bit of a gimmicky thing. It's like a little bit for show, but then it's also really delicious. So you're like, well. <laughs> kind of great it's kind of corny but then it's really great so it's like i can't really talk trash about it but but i don't i don't, I think you could you could accomplish everything that they're accomplishing doing it in the wheel in a frying pan i don't think the cheese wheel is a necessary piece of the pot puzzle yeah 
Got it. Yeah. And actually it's funny because I've had that exact thought and like, it's, you're definitely accurate on it. And I do think though, like sometimes, cause it's like psychological or something, there's just like something about like, I, I get the gimmicky thought, but I also think there's just something about like seeing your pasta encompassed with that much cheese surrounding it. That makes it like, you think it tastes better, but like it might not taste better, but it actually does because you think it does. <laughs> Yeah, I think there's definitely like a psychosomatic or whatever you call that, like, you know, aspect you you eat with your eyes first and, and it is a thing. It is a thing, you know, presentation, presentation really does matter. Um, It's a shame that it does sometimes because, you know, there's certain, certain foods that are so tasty, but just really don't look at meatballs actually are are challenged to photograph. Yeah, I could see that for sure. They kind of look like lumps of shit. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I wasn't going to say that, but if you well, yeah. go with it. <laughs> um, so another thing I want to ask, cause there's this, um, I'm just curious from you working in restaurants. So, so much that, you know, maybe you'd have a perspective on this is, have you ever heard of like the liver King or like, or seen anything on social media of these people eating raw meat? So I've seen that guy eating the raw liver and I think it's spectacular. Um, I think he's an extraordinary, extraordinary um, example of probably the end of our society in a good way. Um, I like to go out with a bang and this is like Atlantis is burning and we're just eating the liver from like a, or like the heart of like golly moss style, like Indiana Jones. Um, <laughs> I don't think that there's any benefit to eating. I think there, I think, if, you know, like there is enough science out there that I think any doctor would probably tell you that there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a strong risk of him dying of parasitic infection or getting real sick from that. And, and whatever health benefits might or might not exist are, are like strongly over overwhelmed by the fact that he's going to die of some weird, like, you know, parasite disease that is only president, like, you know, the, the recently slaughtered liver of a still warm animal. Um, but it's fascinating to watch. And the guy's in great shape. I mean, he could probably kick my butt. So I don't want to say too much. <laughs> okay. So that was, um, <laughs> that was an awesome answer, but so, but so, cause that's what I was curious about more is like, I guess it's the parasite. I didn't know exactly what it was, but I had always heard, you know, like you can eat medium rare or, or just rare steak, but you at least want to cook it a little bit. So the idea that, I mean, he's the most well-known well known that does that, but now I've been seeing more and more uh, of people just eating like completely raw, like just out of a pack, like it could be out of like a normal grocery store and they just rip the plastic off and just eat it. Like, you can, there's, look, there's, look, the, the reality is that it's, it's like, I guess there's the federal, um, uh, the FDA, right? The Food and Drug Administration. And they put together a guideline of, of, of temperatures and time um, that are that are required for killing bacteria. So like, you know, it takes, you have to cook something for this amount of time at this temperature in order to kill the bacteria and make it safe. And those are in, in certain circumstances, like if you want to can something and put it on a shelf and sell it, interstate commerce, like those are laws and there's no you know, immutable and, and you, you follow the rules. Yeah. Um, in a restaurant, obviously we cook a rare steak. There's certain, certain cities where you'll see a little disclaimer at the bottom, eating raw food can be dangerous, yeah. but you know, a lot of it also comes down to the food system. Um, 
uh, when people get sick in a restaurant, most of the, or sick, you know, from food, most of the time it's from salad, uncooked food, you know, like a, a deer will hop the fence and walk through a field of lettuce. Um, that deer will have recently walked in some fecal matter and, um, and then that will create a back, you know, like that will infest the lettuce and bacteria. The lettuce all gets kind of cleaned in the same water and then it becomes widespread. And then that's when you hear about, you know, romaine lettuce is responsible yeah. for E. coli infection and blah, 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 blah. And they're, I remember you know, this. Yeah. So that's kind of like where, you know, if you cook stuff, generally speaking, there are some bacteria or whatever that, but if you cook stuff, um, there are some toxins that'll last that you're, you're pretty safe. That said, like, you know, I went through Japan eating raw horse and raw chicken. Um, they serve raw, raw horse and raw chicken in restaurants, not an issue. Um, and I've eaten a lot of raw chicken. I never cooked my chicken well done. Cause I don't prefer, um, very, very dry. So I cook my chicken medium, a little bloody around the bone. Um, you know, I, trichinosis doesn't exist like the idea of getting sick from pork it's just not a thing i think there's like three of three cases a year or something like that so so i think that there are people like what do they say about oysters i think the the the, 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 the we talk about it in the cookbook it's like if you eat a dozen oysters a day for the next like 300 years you'll get sick twice wow so, yeah. you know i think you know and then the other side of it is people are like oh i got sick i think it was that oyster and it's like you got an upset stomach because you ate like a, you know, like a, <laughs> like a, like a gorilla. You were yeah. shoveling bacon fat into your mouth and yeah, your belly got sick, but you didn't get like food poisoning. Like food poisoning is a uh, food for any of us who have gotten real food poisoning. It's not something that you like accidentally think you might have, like you're sick. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think it's, I think that, I think, um, I don't know. I'm not a doctor, but I definitely <laughs> read the CDC guidelines and I, and, I, and I think people are a little, people are probably more careful. So you should not eat a raw liver right out of the, you know, cavity of a, of an animal that you've just killed unless you're a weird freak. Um, but you know, you probably can, and it'll probably be okay. But if you do it a thousand times, it's definitely not going to be as safe as eating a thousand cooked hamburgers, which, which are less likely to kill you. Got it. Yeah. The chicken, that's the one that I feel like we've, that is uh, presented the most is like, you can never eat raw chicken because of was it like salmon vanilla or something. Salm yes. The thing about the salmonella is, and again, like different countries have different systems of production, like because of the way the food, food production system in America can, can produce so much food from so few sources and, and then, and then, um, deliver them to such a like a wide variety of places it can be when somebody gets sick like if a batch of chicken salmonella will put you in the hospital i mean it's a really nasty bug um yeah. it's just not not a pleasant experience um so what happens is like if a chicken in an assembly line in america where they're you know slaughtering and butchering like a hundred thousand chickens a second or whatever they do they're dripping and juicing and and mixing you know like one day's supply or however many can be like two states worth of food can get contaminated and can be quite dangerous. Um, 
versus if a local farmer is making chicken and they're washing it and taking care of it, it's less likely um, that it would be cross-contaminated. And then, you know, like one person getting sick is, is, is a travesty, but is it really versus, you know, killing a couple states worth of people is really not ideal. Yeah. That's when you get into big, big boy trouble. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, look, dude, very um, interesting. And I'm actually going to, uh, I already decided I'm going to gift my mom your, uh, your book, uh, Food IQ. So um, as I was scrolling through it, I was like, holy, you guys cover a lot of stuff in there. So we just scratched, we didn't even scratch the surface. We only talked about like three topics. Um, so yeah, man, I want to just leave the floor to you. Like if there's anything we didn't cover that you want to mention, please do. And then let people know like social medias, website, book, any, where they can stay in contact with you. I appreciate that. You're a very generous host. You're a kind man. Thank you. <laughs> you are. You're a good guy. Seems like, um, I think we covered a lot. My, I, I think, um, I, I would say that my, I, you know, I had a really wonderful experience working with my writing partner, Matt. Um, and it was a true partnership and, and that's something that feels, feels good because partnership is so hard. And with him, it was not, it was just so easy. Um, he's a hardworking, smart, you know, passionate guy. So that was wonderful experience writing the book and um yeah i mean you can go to to food iq.co and we've got a little website and you can learn about where to you know you can buy the book from any of the the the, the traditional sources online barnesandnoble.com or whatever um and uh i'm chef holes at chef holzman which is my my instagram you know um i love cooking and I love talking about food. People send me messages all the time and people send messages into the info at foodiq.co. you know, like, 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 uh, email. And, and we're always, you know, talking about recipes in the book or people are sending messages over Instagram about, about, you know, the recipes they've tried. And it's really fun. It's a special experience. You cook a book, you, you write a cookbook and then you put it out there and then people use it and it feels so good. Mm. So cool. Yeah, man, dude, that is, uh, that's awesome. And, um, yeah, I think what, uh, we'll do. So once my mom has it, I'm sure she'll try some recipes. So we'll, we'll be uh, one of those ones that are messaging you on Instagram and we'll be, uh, we'll be sharing it. So thank you again, man. I, I appreciate you coming on. Definitely. And when you come out to LA, come down to Danny boy's pizza and, and let's have a slice. I'll, I'll buy you a slice of pizza. Done deal. <laughs> All right. Thanks brother. Thank you so much.